You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. Mr. Speaker, before I begin my prepared remarks, may I point out that tonight marks the 10th and last State of the Union message that you've presided over. And on behalf of the American people, I want to salute you for your service to Congress and country. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace, and in this episode, we couldn't be profiling a more different situation than the one we had profiled in our last episode. Whereas Lyndon Johnson and Everett Dirksen had known each other for more than two decades, since LBJ had been an elevator operator and Everett Dirksen a young congressman, President Ronald Reagan and House Speaker Tip O'Neill had never even met until about two weeks after uh, President Reagan had won the election he was president-elect. And while there is a lot of mythology out there about the relationship between the two men, uh, saying that they were very good friends, in reality, uh, far from it. The truth is they were not good friends. Uh, Realizing that uh, so many of the folks who will be listening to this broadcast uh, probably don't remember Speaker O'Neill. He retired in 1987 and passed away in 1994, which has been over 26 years ago. Uh, so, as I've said, uh, many people may not be as familiar with him, and, and then those folks that are older probably can't believe that there's anybody who wouldn't be familiar with uh, Speaker Tip O'Neill. He was a, a larger-than-life figure in more ways than one, and he stepped straight out of central casting to play the part of a House Speaker or a typical politician. He was overweight, white-headed, um, powerful guy, uh, backslapping politician. He could, he, he could be blunt, he was very partisan, very wily, and thoroughly entertaining. He uh, was disarming, but he was also a tough Boston pole. And, and if, you, if you're not familiar with him, it, I imagine it's probably pretty good that we take a look and introduce you to him, as we did Everett Dirksen um, in last week's episode. The Congress of the United States is the greatest legislature in the greatest nation on earth. The Office of Speaker is the highest legislative office in our country. To serve as speaker is a very special honor, which carries with it solemn responsibilities. Today, I promise you that I'll wield this gavel fairly, firmly, and with responsibility, always respecting the rules and the precedents of this House. Once again, Congress is convening its two houses, controlled by two political parties. The Founding Fathers set up a system of checks and balances that makes passing laws a very difficult process under the best of circumstances and even more difficult when control of Congress is divided between the parties. Before 1981, when these things occurred, this partisan division 
promoted legislative inaction and stalemate. This has not been the case for most issues considered during the 97th and 98th Congresses. There were many legislative fights, but there was almost always a decisive outcome. Consequently, I will continue to do all I can to expedite the nation's business in this House for the next two years. Because the members of this House are elected every two years, we put a premium on action and results. We expect conflict, but I hope that we will reject any obstructionism. Tipo Nico is one of our nation's most distinguished legislators. He made a lasting impact on the United States Congress and America during his years of public service. It's no secret that Tip and I often had differing political views, but as Tip once said during one of our fierce political battles, don't worry, when five o'clock rolls around, we'll put business aside and just be friends. I must confess that on more than one occasion, Tip and I found ourselves turning our watches ahead to the five o'clock hour. The country will miss Tip O'Neill for his wisdom, his fighting spirit, and especially his great Irish wit. Nancy and I send our deepest sympathies to Millie, his family, and the many friends he leaves behind. You are major story tonight, the death of an American original, former Speaker of the House Tip O'Neill. It was O'Neill who said, all politics is local, and he practiced what he preached. From the streets of Cambridge to the highest quarters of power in Washington, his words and his deeds leave an incredible legacy. We begin tonight with New Center 5's Brian Leary. He died in what for him seemed a most natural way, in mid-conversation with his son Tom, for it was his use of words to charm, to cajole, to cheer, which the speaker himself just a few days ago acknowledged was among his greatest assets. But in a local ward fight, where you can go and you can ring everybody's door and you can sit down as we used to do in Mrs. Sweeney's house and Mrs. Murphy's house, have a cup of tea when you rang the doorbell and you tell a story. Telling them in recent days had grown more difficult. The speaker confided in that interview that he wasn't feeling well. Yesterday, he walked into Brigham and Women's Hospital for a routine checkup of some ongoing nerve discomfort. Last evening, while just sitting in his room with his son, Tip O'Neill's heart suddenly stopped beating. A heart whose echoes his political friends say will long be heard. You'll never see another Tip O'Neill. You'll never see a fellow that cared so much, did so much, and was revered so much by so many people. You just never see it again. Uh, he walked with uh, kings and, and queens and heads of government, but uh, he always maintained uh, the common touch. Tip O'Neill began his political career in 1936 as a ward committeeman from North Cambridge, the time of the Depression. A New Deal Democrat who never did give up on the government's potential to improve the lot of the working poor, even when, during the Reagan years, the nation seemed to be leaning the other way. He's somebody that never forgot what it was like in the Depression, when literally millions of people were homeless, jobless, standing in soup lines, and that sort of drove his career. He was going to make darn sure that it never happened again. It was sort of the essence of Tip O'Neill, that government was all about people. Presidential adversary and foe alike were quick to praise Tip O'Neill today. One of our nation's most distinguished legislators, said Ronald Reagan. A man who personified the best of American politics, said Jimmy Carter. Thank you. 
But it is the simple shake of a head on Massachusetts street corners that likely would be Tip O'Neill's most appreciated eulogy. He never forgot where he came from, everyone said today. And if you need a reminder of what Tip O'Neill did for his community, says the man who succeeded him in Congress, just look around. Tip O'Neill uh, was, was largely responsible for Massachusetts getting a terribly unfair share of the federal dollar over the course of the last uh, 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 several decades. From the tunnel and central artery projects to the library on the corner, much of what Tip O'Neill produced for Massachusetts can be attributed to the power of his office, as old political friends say, but most of it can be attributed just to Tip's being Tip. He had a disarming way about him. Uh, he could walk up to Pat Schroeder, uh, or, or some, some of the feminist members of Congress, he'd throw his big arm around them and call them darling, and get away with it. <laughs> Stories. Ask someone about Tip O'Neill today, and you would get a story. It was as if running the business of the country was like running the business of a corner store. Just give people what they need and keep them smiling. A lesson learned from his father and passed on to a nation. And he's all politics are local. He says, you start with everything in your backyard. I want you to remember that forever you live. And by all accounts today, he did. Is that a typical encounter? Sure is. And I'll bet more than once if he walked up to then Congressman Boxer, now Senator Boxer, and asked for a vote more often than not, she'd be inclined to give it to him. When I was a young fellow in public life, and I'm 48 years in public life, 50% of America was impoverished. 25% were unemployed. If you were fortunate enough to go to high school, 3% of the graduating class went on to college. 97% of the senior citizens had no health program. 87% of the, the working men of America had, had no health program. Very few pension programs out there. My dad was a bricklayer. He worked a full six days a week. My mother died when I was three months old, nine months old. I saw my father on Sundays. That's the only time he could be with the family. If you were a fireman, you worked 107 hours a week. If you were a police officer, you worked 84 hours a week. America asked for a change. Today, we brought that level of impoverishment down from 50% to 11.3% 80 of this year. Everybody goes to high school today, 65% go on to college. Where 13% of the working people of America had a health insurance, 87% are covered by health insurances today. 99% of the senior citizens of America through Medicare have some type of a program. You work a 40-hour week, five-day week at the most, you have your obligation, and your obligation is to your family. You do have family time now. 
we made middle America. It cost us billions of dollars to do that. The Congress and all of the presidents did it, Democrats and Republicans. How did it come about? Because it was the will and the desire of the American people to develop middle-class America. And I was a partner in the development of middle-class America. And when they say to me, you want to turn back the clock? Turn back the clock to what? To the days when you didn't have medicine? To the days when you didn't have health insurance? When the days when the breadwinner of the family couldn't educate his family, couldn't go out for recreation with them? Saw them one day? No, I don't want to turn back the clock. As Richard Nixon once said of Tip O'Neill, Tip O'Neill is one of the most able of the speakers that I've known, but also the most partisan. Even when he's acting bipartisan, it's in furtherance of his own partisan interests. Now, that's a pretty blunt assessment of the speaker from a president who lost a battle, the battle, over Watergate. O'Neill was not yet Speaker O'Neill, but he was the guy on the Democratic side who was organizing all the Democrats as they were investigating Watergate and the whole thing unfolded. Now, Ronald Reagan... He came to the White House after nearly 20 years of unparalleled upheaval. He was, by reputation, one of the most conservative leaders ever elected to such a high office. Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan appeared really to be just polar opposites, Such so much so that absolutely nothing was going to get done. The tension was really high as these two men were prepared to meet each other for the very first time. I had never met Ronald Reagan until two weeks after he was elected president when he came by my office, Tip O'Neill wrote. I knew of him, of course, and I remembered him as the congenial television host of General Electric Theater, which my wife Millie and I used to watch on Sunday nights. O'Neill remembered that Reagan seemed to only be going through the motions in their meeting, totally uninterested in the details of governing. And so O'Neill was unimpressed but O'Neill would learn the hard way about underestimating Ronald Reagan. He wrote about what happened in 1981. Reagan enjoyed a truly remarkable rookie year. He pushed through the greatest increase in defense spending in American history, together with the greatest cutbacks in domestic programs and the largest tax cuts this country had ever seen. Reagan's success didn't happen by accident. As soon as he came to the White House, the new president jumped in with both feet. Some members said that they saw more of him in the first four months he was in office than they had seen of Jimmy Carter during the entire four years. Despite the attitude that he had displayed during our first meeting, Reagan took Congress very seriously and was always coming over to the Capitol for meetings. According to what I heard, he instructed his people, tell me who you want me to call and I'll take care of it. I would have given my right arm to hear those words from Jimmy Carter, O'Neill wrote. Again, the importance of respect in any relationship, be it a friendship or even with your adversary. That respect may have come naturally to Ronald Reagan, but it was also from the work of one man, James Baker, Reagan's first chief of staff. Now, Baker knew that Reagan was an extraordinarily charming man, and he was going to unleash that charm on Congress. They were going to be really out there aggressively working the other side. Chris Matthews wrote... Baker was determined that the Reagan White House treat the Democratic speaker with a respect he'd never received from the Carter gang. Chris Matthews, who is best known today for the MSNBC TV show he hosted for two decades, Hardball with Chris Matthews, was an aide to Speaker Tip O'Neill. 
and he wrote, he's written several books, including one on the relationship between these two uh, called Tip and the Gipper. Reagan's age were never parochial, Tip O'Neill wrote, and despite our many differences, they never showed any animosity towards me. On the few occasions when lower echelon people tried to block programs from my district, I would call the White House where Mike Deaver or Jim Baker or somebody else on the president's team would always straighten things out. Never was the Reagan White House guilty of playing games with Speaker O'Neill. That created an atmosphere of trust between the two men, even though they were often in bitter legislative fights over the years that they were in leadership on opposite ends of Pennsylvania Avenue. It's Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. and I had uh, Tip and his wife over for dinner and uh, then one day I picked up the paper and read where he had made a statement about me that was <laughs> uh, pretty harsh and I called him and I said Tip I thought we had a relationship here where we could do business together and all and now I read in the paper that you said and he interrupted me and said well old buddy that's just politics. He said, after six o'clock, we're buddies, we're friends. Was so, Jesse Unruh the same way? Huh? Was Jesse Unruh the same way? No. <laughs> no, but I, I with, uh, uh, with Tip, I did take it that every once in a while when we had a meeting, I would visibly set my watch <laughs> at above six o'clock. <laughs> Tip O'Neill liked to tell that friends after six story, too. He wrote... Before Reagan left my office that day, I let him know that although we came from different parties, I looked forward to working with him. I reminded him that I had always been on good terms with the Republican leadership, and that despite our various disagreements in the House, we were all friends after 6 o'clock and on weekends. The President seemed to like that formulation, and over the next six years, he would often begin our telephone conversations by saying, 
Hello, Tip. Is it after 6 o'clock? Absolutely, Mr. President, I would respond. Uh, our watches must have been in sync because even with our many intense political battles, we managed to maintain a pretty good friendship. However, these battles could be fierce. And for Tip O'Neill, there was, at times, a sense of desperation due to Ronald Reagan's amazing sway with the American people. In 1981, O'Neill wrote, Everything I fought for, everything I had believed in, was being cast aside. Thomas O'Neill III, Tip's son, wrote about how his father and Reagan really felt about each other's philosophies. Let's not forget my father's blunt description of his ideological opposite as Herbert Hoover with a smile or cheerleader for selfishness. He referred to the village of Reagan's Irish forebears, Valley Puring, as the Valley of the Small Potatoes. Two phrases I often heard him use about Reagan, trust but verify, and love the sinner, hate the sin. My father, O'Neill wrote, was not pleased to be compared by the president to the character in the video game Pac-Man, a round thing that gobbles up money, or to being the butt of GOP political advertising. Even in retirement, O'Neill wrote of Ronald Reagan, many people were shocked at how poorly the president performed during the first debate in the 1984 campaign. But to me, that was the real Ronald Reagan. I've said it before, but this book is my political testament, and I'll say it again right here. Reagan lacked the knowledge he should have had in every sphere, both domestic and international. Most of the time, he was an actor reading lines who didn't understand his own program. I hate to say it about such an agreeable man, but it was sinful that Reagan ever became president. So, unlike LBJ and Everett Dirksen, it's safe to say Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan were not friends. Though perhaps they learned to tolerate each other for the good of the country and made the best of it, even over a drink at six or on weekends. Now, Ronald Reagan was considerably more restrained in his comments about Tip O'Neill. Mike Deaver, perhaps President Reagan's closest assistant, going back to his California days, told Chris Matthews for his book that Reagan thought Tip was absolutely wrong and pig-headed, but there was a lot of respect that both of them had for each other. Why was that, you may wonder? Chris Matthews wrote in his book that they had one very big thing in common, not just their Irishness, but their age. Both were growing not just older, but old, and they knew it. If each were to leave their mark, then he would have to do it, somehow, with the other. In other words, together. Thomas O'Neill wrote of the two men, what both men deplored more than the other's political philosophy was stalemate and a country that was so polarized by ideology and party politics that it could not move forward. There were tough words and important disagreements over everything from taxation to Medicare and military spending, but there was yet a stronger commitment to getting things done. Chris Matthews described five things that made the relationship work, he felt. One, Democrats honored the mandate of the 1980 election. They made their case, but they did not obstruct Reagan's leadership. Two, Reagan and O'Neill believed in smoothly running government, 
they believed in government that functioned. Three, Reagan and O'Neill had a good personal relationship. Four, Reagan and O'Neill worked together on taxes, immigration, and to bring peace to Northern Ireland, those things that they found that were common ground. They dropped the tax rate, Matthews pointed out, to a top rate of 28%. O'Neill went to Reagan at one point and advised him to reach out to Margaret Thatcher, that he would support him on it, so that Margaret Thatcher could make that first step to what would become the Good Friday Accords and peace in Northern Ireland. Number five, they ended the Cold War together. Tip, Tip O'Neill was the first to meet with Mikhail Gorbachev. He told the Soviet leader at that meeting that Reagan really wanted to meet with him and negotiate. Gorbachev asked O'Neill who he was in the government, and O'Neill told him he was the opposition leader. Gorbachev, according to Chris Matthews, supposedly replied, what is that? And O'Neill just said back to him, it means we don't disagree about everything. O'Neill made it a rule that when Reagan was meeting with Gorbachev, he spoke as the leader of our country, and he kept the Democrats quiet as to not undermine the president uh, at those moments. Chris Matthews ended, it's pretty stirring stuff when you read that history. These two men made the effort the good of the country to get along, to figure out ways they can work together and to keep the government moving. Perhaps that all came from a stirring moment early in Ronald Reagan's first term. Tip O'Neill wrote about it. For a fellow his age, I've never met a man in better physical condition. I touched his arm one day and it was like iron. Is this from chopping wood or on your ranch, I asked. He nodded, and with real enthusiasm, he described a special double-edged axe he liked to use. A few weeks later, when my daughter Rosemary asked me what I wanted for Christmas, I told her about the president's axe, and I said I just might go out and chop a little wood for our fireplace at Cape Cod. She bought me the axe, and on the first mild day after Christmas, I went back and started swinging. I survived about 15 minutes before I had to come inside, tired and sore. The next time I saw the president, I asked, by the way, when you chop wood, how long do you keep it up? Oh, he said, I'm usually at it for a couple of hours. They say that when Reagan was younger, he could hit a golf ball a mile. I'll say this, the Democrats were damn lucky that he and I never had to settle our disagreements with boxing gloves. I'm convinced that the president's hearty constitution is what kept him alive after the, after the attempt on his life on March 30th, 1981, during the third month of his presidency. As a get-well gift, I bought the president a book of Irish humor, but I was shocked by his condition, which seemed much more serious than what had been announced. This was three days after the shooting, and he was clearly exhausted and in pain. I stayed only a moment, as he obviously was in no shape to receive visitors. I suspect that in the first day or two after the shooting, he was probably closer to death than most of us realize. If he hadn't been so strong and hearty, I, it could have all been over. However, there was more to that story. Chris Matthews wrote about it in his book from the eyes of one of the few people who has actually witnessed it, Max Friedersdorf, a man who worked for Jim Baker and who had been assigned to make sure no one else got inside that hospital room. Jim Baker had decided that as a symbol of the way our government works, 
that the opposition leader should be the first person able to come in and see the president. It was rather poignant. Tip got down on his knee next to the bed and said a prayer for the president, and he held his hand and kissed him. And they said a prayer together. It was the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness and for his name's sake. The speaker stayed quite a while, Friedrichsdorf recalled. They never talked very much. I just heard him say that prayer. And then I heard him say, God bless you, Mr. President. We're all praying for you. The speaker was crying. The president, who was obviously sedated, said, I appreciate you coming down, Tip. The speaker sat there by his bed and held his hand for a long time. Chris Matthews continued, As someone who worked 24-7 for the speaker in those Reagan years, I think there was a further factor at work. I dare to call this added ingredient, greatness. Both men knew where they stood. But I, I like to think back on that picture of simple humanity between two political rivals in that hospital room in the spring of 1981. One man in crisis, the other praying for him. You wouldn't want to talk me into an encore, would you? (laughs) (laughs) Mr. Speaker, Mr. President, distinguished members of the Congress, honored guests and fellow citizens, I have no words to express my appreciation for that, that greeting. I've... I have come to speak to you tonight about our economic recovery program and why I believe it's essential that the Congress approve this package, which I believe will lift the crushing burden of inflation off of our citizens and restore the vitality to our economy and our industrial machine. First, however, and due to events of the past few weeks, will you permit me to digress for a moment from the all-important subject of why we must bring government spending under control and reduce tax rates, I'd like to say a few words directly to all of you and to those who are watching and listening tonight, because this is the only way I know to express to all of you on behalf of Nancy and myself our appreciation for your messages, your flowers, and most of all, your prayers not only for me, but for those others who fell beside me. The warmth of your words, the expression of friendship, and yes, love, meant more to us than you can ever know. You have given us a memory that we'll treasure forever. And you've provided provided an answer to those few voices that were raised saying that what happened was evidence that ours is a sick society. The society we heard from is made up of millions of compassionate Americans and their children from college age to kindergarten. As a matter of fact, as evidence of that, I have a letter with me. A letter came from 
Peter Sweeney. He's in the second grade in the Riverside School in Rockville Center. And he said, I hope you get well quick, or you might have to make a speech in your pajamas. He added a postscript. P.S. If you have to make a speech in your pajamas, I warned you. <laughs> well, six societies don't produce men like the two who recently returned from outer space. Six societies don't produce young men like Secret Service agent Tim McCarthy, who placed his body. placed his body between mine and the man with the gun simply because he felt that's what his duty called for him to do. Six societies don't produce dedicated police officers like Tom Delahanty. <laughs> or able and devoted public servants like Jim Brady. Six societies don't make people like us so proud to be Americans and so very proud of our fellow citizens. Now, let's talk about getting spending and inflation under control and cutting your tax rates. It's Randall Wallace, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I hope you've enjoyed our podcast uh, so far, and I want to invite you to come over to Amazon and take a look at our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, plus some other lessons and a few opinions from my time in politics. It's a book that I put out in December of last year, 2019. It has a lot of ideas based on our campaign for Congress in 2012 about how to bring the country together, some ideas and programs and policy initiatives that really could probably be embraced by anyone. I'd also like to invite you to come over to Facebook to our page, The Silent Majority. It's free to join, and this way you can keep up with different things that we will be doing in 2021 and beyond. And for now, I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the generation who grew up in the Great Depression and fought World War II and then led us through the American century. I'm Randall Wallace, and now let's get back to the show. say that he would say no, that there is no precedent for that. 
I think with those facts in mind, they knew what my answer was going to be. Uh, I, I feel confident the president himself has really no part on this. I think he's too much of a gentleman. I think it's just a cheap political shot as far as Don Regan is concerned. Any questions? Don Regan, the president's later chief of staff, created a tough moment. Tip O'Neill knew it had not come from Ronald Reagan. They may not have been close friends, but O'Neill and Reagan trusted and respected one another, and they knew enough to know whatever had happened had not come from either of them. In 1983, Reagan and O'Neill formed a commission to save Social Security and prolong the life of the trust fund. The commission raised the payroll tax, phased in a raising of the retirement age, and extended the life of the trust fund for 40 years. We just now have to look at the trust fund's future 35 years down the road. It was a monumental achievement, and it was just one of many. They worked together to create programs that would create jobs, too. In one case, when they came to an agreement that O'Neill was able to brag about as a domestic success, he took the microphone, and instead of saying things that made himself look good, like a winner, at the president's expense, as so often is done today, Tip O'Neill said, When I met with President Reagan on January 31st, he promised that he would direct David Stockman to find areas where government spending could create more jobs. The president has kept his promise. He made a democratic victory a bipartisan one. I guess my point about all these relationships is that if our country is going to get back on track, we must do two things. We must learn to trust one another again, and we must learn to respect each other too. That can only be done by building bridges to one another and building relationships. That's what Strom Thurmond did with Joe Biden, and that's what Lyndon Johnson did and Everett Dirksen, and that's what Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill did. These two men cut taxes and saved jobs and laid the groundwork to save Social Security. They also fought tough battles and had polar opposite views, but they made the effort and they kept making it no matter what else happened. They were both committed to moving the country forward. Thomas O'Neill III summed it up best. That commitment to put the country ahead of personal belief and party loyalty is what millions of Americans miss so much right now. It allowed these two men to bend enough, even after their knockdown fight in 1982, to forge an agreement that helped save Social Security, something both men knew needed to be done. It meant that Reagan could support an increase in federal gas taxes, which would fund infrastructure improvements that both he and my father were convinced would put thousands of unemployed Americans back to work. My father hated to see the House cut social programs, even as he recognized that the president had been elected by millions of Americans and had earned the right to steer the country. Historic tax reforms, seven tax increases, a strong united front that brought down the Soviet Union, all came of a commitment to find common ground. While neither man embraced the other's worldview, each respected the other's right to hold it. Each respected the other as a man. President Reagan knew my father treasured Boston College, so he was the centerpiece of a dinner at the Washington Hilton Hotel that raised a million dollars to build the O'Neill Library there. When Reagan was shot at that same hotel, my father went to his hospital room to pray by his bed. No, 
My father and Reagan weren't close friends. Famously, after 6 p.m. on quite a few work days, they would sit down for drinks at the White House. But it wasn't the drinks or the conversation that allowed American government to work. Instead, it was a stubborn refusal not to allow fundraisers, activists, party platforms, or ideological chasms to stand between them and actions, tempered and improved by compromise. That kept this country moving. My privilege to introduce to you the President of the United States. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Reverend clergy, Mr. Prime Minister, Mr. Speaker, ladies and gentlemen, I want to begin tonight by saying how touched I am to know that Timp wanted me here this evening. Why, he even called me himself last week and said, Mr. President, make sure you don't miss the dinner Tuesday night. <laughs> but to be honest, I've always known the tip was behind me. Even, even it was only at the State of the Union address. As I made each proposal, I could hear Tip whispering to the George Bush Forget it. No way. <laughs> Fat chance. <laughs> I think it was inevitable, though, that there'd be a standoff between us. Imagine one Irishman trying to corner another Irishman in the Oval Office. <laughs> but despite all this, Tip wanted me here. He said that since it was March 17th, it was only fitting that someone dropped by who actually had known St. Patrick. <laughs> and that's true, Tip. I did know St. Patrick. In fact, we both changed to the same political party at about the same time. Now, it's true that Tip and I have had our political disagreements. Sure, I said some things about Tip, and Tip said some things about me, but that's all history. And anyway, you know how it is. I forget. I just follow that old motto, forgive and forget, or is it forget and forgive? Uh, uh. Ladies and gentlemen, I think you know Tip and I have been kidding each other for some time now, and I hope you also know how much I hope this continues for many years to come. A little kidding is, after all, a sign of affection, the sort of things that friends do to each other. And Mr. Speaker, I'm grateful you have permitted me in the past, and I hope in the future, that singular honor, the honor of calling you my friend. I think the fact that... Of... 
I think the fact of our friendship is testimony to the political system that we're part of and the country we live in, a country which permits two not-so-shy and not-so-retiring Irishmen to have it out on the issues rather than on each other or their countrymen. But in addition to celebrating a, a country and a personal friendship, I wanted to come here tonight to join you in saluting Tip O'Neill, to salute him for the years of dedication and devotion to country. Tip's recollections of politics go back, of course, far beyond my own. He's, uh, <laughs> he's seen some who play the game well and others who do not. He's seen some who love politics and some who came to it only out of a sense of duty. But through it all, Tip has been a vital and forceful part of America's political tradition, a tradition that he has truly enriched. Yet Tip O'Neill represents far more than just this political tradition. Deep within, too, is the memory of places like Back Bay and South Boston, the docks, the piers, those who came off the ships in Boston Harbor seeking a, a better land, a better way for their children. And they found that something between, or better, they rose above the prejudice and the hardship. Tip would see one of his contemporaries become president. John F. Kennedy would be 68 today had he lived. And Tip can remember those golden hours better than most in this room. And then not too many years later, there was another of immigrant stock who would become Speaker of the House. In so short a time, so much leadership from one city, one place, one people. How fitting that Boston College, a place that became to so many of those new arrivals a symbol of moving upward and onward, how fitting that Boston College, whose towers on the heights have reached a heaven's own blue for so many, should sponsor this salute to Tip O'Neill. Tip, you are a true son of Boston College and our friend. And we salute you. You are also a leader of the nation, and for that, we honor you. But you also embody so much of what this nation is all about, the hope that is America. So you make us proud as well, my friend. You make us proud. Thank you. God bless you. My motto has been here, to hell with politics. Just do what's right for Alaska. Ted Stevens and Dan Inouye. So close, they called each other brother. One Republican, one Democrat. Together, they brought two impoverished, far distant territories turned states into the modern world. They ensured for each other that no matter who was in power, no matter which party had control, neither state would ever be hurt. But we would think of him as Alaska's third senator. They worked together. That also meant 
as chairman and ranking member on the Senate Appropriations Armed Services Subcommittee, they would build the modern military. And they did it all based on the closest of friendships. We must work together. Next time on Bridging the Political Gap. you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it, and we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again, and so long for now. <laughs>